Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to episode 110 of the Naturally Nourished podcast. You are joining us for a highly requested topic all about Alzheimer's disease, preventing cognitive decline, and the concerning APOE4 gene when considering nutritional ketosis. Yes, I know this is a huge priority as a lot of our clients are of the age where they're starting to experience either cognitive decline or Alzheimer's in their parents. And Alzheimer's disease is the major cause of age-related cognitive decline with about 5.4 million American patients and 30 million affected globally. So it's a huge epidemic at this point. Yes. And regardless of where you fall, if you're in your 20s or if you're in your 70s and you're listening, like Becky said, this may be something that you're personally starting to experience or experiencing with loved ones, parents, grandparents. And the tips in today's episode will really arm you with how to defend against cognitive decline and use food as medicine to enhance your brain function, regardless of where you fall on the spectrum. So definitely buckle up. It's going to be dense. It's going to go deep. <laughs> Becky's nervous. No I can way. feel it. We're going to get there. We're going to, we're going to do, this is going to be great. No, I'm, I'm super pumped for this episode, just from a personal standpoint, watching my grandmother while I was in college struggle with Alzheimer's for more than 10 years. Um, this has been kind of a big catalyst into my own personal keto journey even. So I'm really yes. excited to address this from a functional medicine perspective and hear all of the amazing things you have to say. <laughs> Let's do it, girl. <laughs> so with taking a functional approach and looking to resolve root cause of chronic illness, it's always important to understand the mechanisms of how the disease process occurs in the first place. So let's talk about Alzheimer's and really why the memory begins to go off, why the brain can become sluggish in the first place. So yes, Alzheimer's disease is a degenerative brain condition or or disease, if you will, of of quote unquote, an unknown cause. But definitely today, we're going to talk a lot of of root drivers, if you will. Uh, It's the most common form of dementia. And it usually actually starts in late middle age. So this could be defined as early as the Ford age in the range of the 40s, or it may come as more of a rapid onset in more advanced aging in 70s and beyond. Uh, The results of Alzheimer's and, and the symptoms tend to correspond with progressive memory loss, impaired thinking, and can get as severe as disorientation, panic, changes in personality and mood. And classically, we diagnose this by histologically the degeneration of brain neurons, which were always said to be seen upon autopsy. You know, that's kind of like that 
I don't know if we want to call that an urban myth or whatnot, but I think as advanced medicine progresses, we're learning about other ways to diagnose earlier onset and, and maybe not necessitate that confirmation with autopsy, but autopsy would reveal the degeneration of neurons. And we'll see this really especially concentrated in the cerebral cortex of the brain. And we'll see the presence of neurofibrillary tangles and plaques that contain beta amyloid. And so both tangles and plaques are of beta amyloid are things that we definitely hear tossed around in conversation of progression of dementia and Alzheimer's. Yep. So since I know we're going there, let's just get the nerdy stuff out of the way. Um, and let's talk about those what those tangles and plaques actually are and why this happens in the first place. Sure. So Alzheimer's results from an imbalance, essentially, of our internal or endogenous plasticity signaling. So when we're talking about functional brain activity, there's always neuroplasticity as a primary mechanism of how we learn, how we memorize, how we function, and how the central nervous system corresponds with the rest of the body. So in Alzheimer's disease, we have an imbalance of these internal signals, and we see beta amyloid precursor protein, which is also known as APP for amyloid precursor protein, as a mediator or kind of a regulator, if you will, of such plasticity signaling. So we basically see the APP or beta amyloid protein um, driving the imbalance of the signaling within the brain. We see with Alzheimer's that there's definitely a correlation with this signaling impacting synapse development, uh, maintenance and repair, remodeling of synapses within the brain. And we can see within the APP, it has derivative peptides, including APOE and tau. And these are going to be modulated or regulated by varied factors associated with the disease progression. So some key terms to kind of familiarize yourself with as we dig into today's episode are um, the concept of tangles. So uh, some will refer to this as an NFT or a neurofibrillary tangle. And these basically are aggregates uh, of tau protein that are considered a primary marker of Alzheimer's disease. They get hyperphosphorylated and um, the tau protein becomes these tangles, if you will, or denser tissue buildup, okay? And those are called NFTs. We also look at something called nerve growth factor. And nerve growth factor is a neutrophic factor and a neuropeptide that's primarily regulated in growth. So neurotrophics are going to maintain, proliferate, support the benefit of brain function. And um, our nerve growth factor will play a role with the survival of certain target neurons, if you will. And interestingly enough, the nerve growth factor is very connected to our beta pancreatic cells, which are the cells that regulate blood sugar, as well as our immunological health. So two risk factors as far as immune system distress and blood sugar metabolism can have an immediate impact on our nerve growth factor. And again, that's kind of the orchestra, orchestra 
orchestrator of the growth and the function of our neuropeptides. And then those tangles are what we'll see when the tau protein gets basically built up um, from over-phosphorylation or over-demand in the brain. And um, again, getting back to this beta amyloid, that is a type of a protein, if you will, that builds up and creates plaque formation. Okay. So I think I got it. Tangles, <laughs> plaques. I can picture those things at least, right? In okay. the brain, getting in the way of stuff. So um, you mentioned both the, the insulin impact and the immunological impact can play a role in brain health. And I really want to make sure that we cover and kind of hit home this idea of elevated blood sugar actually being a driver of Alzheimer's. We've called it, we've called it type three diabetes for some time now. So let's talk about that. Yes. So when we're talking about this kind of tarry plaque formation in the brain, the connection of type three diabetes is looking at the mechanisms of glycosylation. And glycosylation is a fancy word for coated in sugar. So again, the, the mechanisms of Alzheimer's disease with, with all of those fancy terms that I just said is basically seeing a fundamental issue with the physiological processes that mediate plasticity or regeneration. So we start to get more breakdown than we do rebuild. That's the most important thing to kind of think of because cells are constantly turning and basically the signals of damage enhance and the signals of regeneration and repair get reduced. So when we're looking at the influence of blood sugar and glycosylation, when we look at hemoglobin A1C, this is a marker of our blood sugar on average. And so we really in the recent decades started deeming a lot more importance and value on A1C. And we have, you know, a diabetic range of 6.2 and above, a pre-diabetic range starting at 5.6 and above, and then, you know, safer ranges of 5.4 and below, if you will. And basically what that percent looks at is the percent of how coated your red blood cells are in sugar. So it's actually giving us about a three-month average, if you will, of how coated your red blood cells are. This same marker, and we'll talk later in today's episode about different biomarkers and labs that can be run to learn more. But this marker is one of the foundational ones because it actually shows us the risk factor of how coated not only our red blood cells are in sugar, but that means that that glycosylation occurs systemically, meaning the entire system is somewhat going to be coated in sugar. And when we're talking about the brain, that's going to gunk down the regeneration and the function of cellular turnover or neuroplasticity. And it's, it's kind of like putting sugar crystallizes, right? So it hardens and, and it forms um, like a caking, if you will, and that reduces neuroplasticity. So we can see as early as elevated hemoglobin A1C of 5.7 and above, starting to see trends of that being an influence in cognitive decline and a lack of the feedback that's needed, A, contributing towards more tangles and reducing that nerve growth factor activity. Okay. And then fasting insulin would probably be a good marker to run as well as that A1C. Yes. I mean, absolutely. So when we look at inflammation in the body and, and markers like insulin growth factor and just fasting insulin itself, 
Yes, we can see actually, and and we'll get to really exciting, cool things like the work on autophagy and fasting. Those processes are one of the best ways to bring down fasting insulin. And one of the only ways that we can actually see a cleanup of beta amyloid plaque formation. So we can actually see as fasting insulin levels go down, we can actually see some restorative function on the brain tissue. So awesome. So beyond just macros and reducing that sugar coatedness or glycation um, with reduction of refined sugar and excessive carbs, let's get into some other factors. And then I think we'll circle back on a lot of this and how keto fits, but other factors that drive cognitive burnout or decline and how that contributes. Yeah. So a huge one that's often not acknowledged enough is poor sleep um, and excess stress. So just truly demand, right? We actually kind of like bathe our brain in reset mode when we're going through our REM cycle of our sleep. This is when our alpha waves of our brain reset and they optimize our memory and our cognition. So if we're getting less than seven hours of sleep per night, we're not going to get that optimal brain kind of reprogram that we need every single night to cope with the demands that we take on in our daily basis. And we also see other mechanisms even beyond the alpha brainwave activity as a reset. We see autophagy or cellular repair as an upregulation during sleep. We also see our basal metabolic rate to be up during time of sleep. So that could actually help in some ways, regulate that blood sugar metabolism. And we look at sleep as being such an integral role of both cellular repair physiologically and then psychologically it playing a big role. So physiologically, beyond the alpha brainwaves and the cellular change, we can actually see physical repair of tissues, building of muscular structure, bones, tendons, joints, ligaments, and definitely there is some brain regeneration. And that generally happens between the hours of 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. And that also is accelerated by hormonal mechanisms like HGH, which surges, that human growth hormone. And that's going to play a main impact with that kind of circadian set in the body. And, And it's just something that I think goes without saying, on a cognitive level, shutting down so that the brain can rest is the most simplified way of of really looking at it. But there's complex mechanisms at play. Sure. And it's kind of that time we'll get into again, autophagy and all of that, but that time that the brain is like getting rid of, or the body's getting rid of old junky parts, if you will, that it doesn't need and that don't serve it. Um, So before we move on, I know sleep, we've talked about, um, I'll link to our last episode on insomnia. I can't remember this time what number it is. It's in the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Pretty recent. Uh, But we've got an awesome episode that gets into some sleep solutions, but I want to make sure that we hit on the impact of sleep on our neurotransmitters, um, connection to brain chemistry, and maybe a couple of sleep support solutions. Yes. So like I said, you know, 10 to 2 is really where we get a huge physiological repair, but there's definitely a neurotransmitter and a hormone influence of sleep as well. In fact, research shows that between the hours of 2 and 6 a.m., the body has the most psychological regeneration. So we see neurotransmitters and sexual hormones, as including, of course, neurochemicals being tools that play a big role with our mental health, our stress resilience, and they become recycled and repaired or regenerated to set us up for a successful 
day and to be able to cope with the demands that we take on in our work life or whatever life throws at us throughout our, our waking hours. And so it's interesting to consider that actually those hours are important. It's not just getting seven hours of sleep because uh, there was a research study by Harvard Medical School, and it was in 2003, and they found a link to shift night workers with decreased melatonin production. So, you know, because they're exposed to so much artificial light, they actually have a suppression of melatonin produced. And we alluded to this in our episode on insomnia, that melatonin actually plays a role with regulating estrogen dominance. So we see correlations of, or actually a known risk factor, not just a correlation, a risk factor in developing breast cancer of getting inadequate sleep. And we also see that connection of melatonin and serotonin depletion when we're not sleeping during ideal hours. And some of that could be going back to our episode on ancestral health and like gravitational pull and the influence of the moon and the charge of the earth. I mean, it's pretty wild stuff. But the connection that's interesting with Alzheimer's is that women are more affected than men. And there's a huge hypothesis now about the role of estrogen metabolism and estrogen changes in onset of cognitive decline. So so the neurotransmitter, as far as impact on serotonin and GABA and epinephrine and our stress chemicals, those can deplete the synaptic or create synaptic burnout in the brain, right? So we get literally emotionally taxed and that can create inflammatory processes. Then we have a compounding variable of sexual hormone imbalance. And then studies even independently have shown that beta amyloid builds up with lack of qualitative sleep. Um, So there's been specific research studies done on measuring beta amyloid in the brain based on impairment of brain function and cognitive decline. And some of those studies are on just one night of sleep, which is wild. So one night of of losing yes, sleep yes. and impact. Oh my gosh, that makes me want to get back to my like New Year's resolution from last year of <laughs> actually sleeping, right? Oh yes. So much to share. But before we go forward, I need to share our new sponsor, CrowdCow, who I'm super stoked to bring into our audience of the Naturally Nourished podcast. They're all about farm-to-table movement, and in fact, they take this to the next level when they provide you a zip code search where you're able to find where your meat comes from, all focusing on meat that is ethically sourced. CrowdCow believes in full transparency, and for a limited time, you can enjoy free shipping in addition to $25 off your first order when you use crowdcow.com backslash naturally nourished as your login. Of course, we'll put the link in the show notes, but let us tell you for a couple of moments why Becky and I are super excited to have them as sponsors. Yes. So, you know, Allie and I are all about eating the foods that you know where it comes from at the end of the day and knowing what, what you're eating eats. Yes. So we're looking at hundred percent grass-fed beef, pasture-raised pork, pasture-raised chicken, and you can choose your cuts, which is the coolest part. So you can choose from very fancy steaks, uh, ribeyes, tomahawks, even Japanese wagyu that is fed on olives. Yes. Talk about an amazing fatty acid profile and butter in your mouth. Amazing. (laughs) And they have things like organ meats and other cuts that might not show up at your local grocery store. And you can choose and pick and pull 
what you want for each share. And it's not a subscription service. So you get to choose your box when you want it, how you want it. You can do it as a special holiday treat or gift or do every other month or whatever really works for you and your schedule. I also love that they're premium ground beef because you guys know I love to make a weekday bolognese. We love to make burgers in my household or organ-based uh, lasagna type deals with zucchini noodles or meatballs. And their premium ground beef is made from dry aged beef. So the flavor profile is literally amazing. It is so different. It has less meat drippings and it is a wonderful mouth feel which takes any dish to the next level. And that's where quality really sings. Beyond this, as you know, when you're choosing grass-fed meats, you're gonna get a higher omega-3 fatty acid profile, which means more health-supporting fats, lower inflammation, and more nutrient density. Fantastic bang for your buck. And yes, as we know, holiday eating is always tough and tricky to navigate. So this is something you can really treat yourself to as a guilt-free food choice with clean eating, full transparency into where your food came from, and why would you really want your meat to come from any unknown source anyway? So when you're buying from CrowdCow, you know that you're voting with your dollar, supporting local ranchers and small sustainable farms. In fact, you get the farm name from the source that you're buying, which is an awesome return on your investment. And you know you're nourishing yourself and your family with the quality proteins that also taste the best they can. So go on over to crowdcow.com backslash naturally nourished to get your $25 off and free shipping and get a taste for yourself of quality and, and best sourcing of where it's at. Let's talk a little bit about um, support for sleep. And I know too, if we're talking about you know an aging population as well, this is a, an even bigger concern. Um, but what would you, um, what are your kind of couple of tools for sleep support and getting that good night's sleep? Yeah. So my first go-to across the board would be relax and regulate because that's going to provide us foundationally the nutrient magnesium bisglycinate, which is a neuromuscular relaxer. So that should help us to get into deep qualitative sleep. It also should help us to metabolize excess cortisol and the form of glycinate is what's going to hit the neuromuscular system, meaning that it will also relax tension that we hold in the jaw, in the upper neck and shoulders. It's just really a, a best friend. And the Relax and Regulate has magnesium bisglycinate as well as inositol. And inositol beautifully interacts with hormones to balance out sexual hormones, so less of that risk factor with potential estrogen dominance. And inositol itself has been shown in studies, it's kind of a cousin to the B vitamin family, that when it drops to a deficient status, we are more prone towards anxiety and insomnia. So that's a really great nutritional formula, the relax and regulate, and you can take one to two scoops at bed. And then some clients at higher need will take a higher amount, especially those dealing with neurological conditions like multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's, they may be using three to four scoops a day. Another one I'd consider is the Naturally Nourished Sleep Support Supplement. So actually, literally, since we did that episode <laughs> on insomnia, Becky, and we dug deep into the research on the health implications, what, what did you call it? You found that sleep, um, excuse me, lack of sleep is actually considered a carcinogen, uh -huh. right? Yeah. Yep. So, yep. I mean, that like blew my mind. And as an entrepreneur and a busy full-time working mama and the constant many hats that I wear, 
it's not uncommon, unfortunately, for me to be up till 1 a.m. every single night. Every single night, I think it's been for the last year. I don't even know. Maybe it's been the last three years of my life and I'm in a blur. I don't know, but it's true. It's That's my life. And I luckily am able to sleep in until 7.30, so I get at least six and a half. I'm trying to get that seven as my minimum. That's always my goal. But with that being said, I decided that proactively, if I'm going to be just skimping by that seven hours, that I was going to start taking our sleep support formula every single night. So I do take 1.5 milligrams of melatonin. There's 1.5 milligrams per tablet, as well as a blend of nervine and adaptogenic herbs. And um, I just take one tablet of those every night with my two probiotics. And before uh, I brush my teeth, I take my relax and regulate and my GI lining powder, but that's my ritual. But anyway, sleep support, I'm taking proactively knowing that I may not get the benefit of the melatonin expression. So I am kind of biohacking that, if you will. And uh, melatonin, remember, functions as an antioxidant. So it's definitely one that's in high need and high need for brain health. So I would not be concerned about becoming reliant on it. I cycle out melatonin on Saturday and Sunday, and I take it Monday through Friday. And are you noticing deeper, more qualitative sleep of the hours that you do get with that supplementation? Absolutely. And I find that the 1.5 milligrams does not make me groggy in any way. I'm able to, right when my alarm goes, I'm up and I'm at them. And I do, I feel that I sleep deeper and more regenerative qualitative sleep for sure. See, I can only take half of one still, but we talked about that in the sleep episode and, and our hypothesis into why. Um, but yes. before um, we get too deep into um, this concept of, I want to go back to autophagy in a second um, and that reset, but I know um, that'll be an emphasis with keto and intermittent fasting and all of that. But let's talk first on trends of cognitive decline and micronutrient depletion, because I think this is a big one, again, in our aging population and just across the board, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. So choline would actually be the first one that I would list. And this is one that I see huge functional improvement on a clinical level when I'm looking at a micronutrient assessment and someone's dealing with uh, cognitive decline, uh, orientation shifts in the brain, like saying wrong directions, that kind of bilateral connection, as well as memory loss. You know, remember that Alzheimer's has a loss of actually the, the basal forebrain cholinergenic neurons. So choline literally plays a role with neurological function. It plays a role with acetylcholine as a neurotransmitter tool. And acetylcholine is literally like the wire of the telephone connection. Oh, we don't use those. We use wireless now, but you know. (laughs) For those of you that remember what those are. For those of you millennial listeners, there's a thing called a telephone. (laughs) They had a cord. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Um, But yes, so um, acetylcholine is literally like that conductor of the neurotransmitter signals. And of course it's derived from choline, uh, choline. And then there's also cholinergenic neurons themselves. And so, uh, there's a loss or a depletion of these compounds when we're talking about cognitive decline. One of the best things you can do is really bathe the body and brain in this nutrient. So it's a B derived nutrient. It is seen very high level in egg yolks and in liver. So again, connecting that big idea that Alzheimer's and cognitive decline have increased with not only the influence of potentially statin drugs, but also with the 
high carb, low fat diet and the low cholesterol diet, because about Mm -hmm. 25% of the brain is made up of cholesterol as well. Um, And so choline is a huge nutrient focus. And then sticking on the vein of uh, B vitamins, I would also call out pantothenate, which we just did an entire episode on B5 and its functionality. It plays a huge role with our adrenal glands and our stress responding action in the brain as well as folate and B12. So looking at the role of folate and B12 in a way of regulating homocysteine, which is an inflammatory uh, marker of rigidity, if you will, in our vascular system and also a marker of cognitive decline and inflammation. Um, Methylfolate, methylated folate, methylated B12, and other methyl donors, like even trimethylglycine, these are all seen to be positive, well-researched nutrients to help to reduce that beta amyloid, amyloid plaque and also enhance cognitive function and balance out our neurotransmitters. So all of those, choline, pantothenate, folate, B12, and maybe I'd even say P5P or activated B6, because that's a cofactor for our neurotransmitters, like the production of serotonin and things like that. Those would be the first category of importance. And then I have two more. (laughs) So I want to make sure you go before you ask me the next question. (laughs) I'll let you say two more, but I do want to drive home just this point of, especially in our aging population, a lot of these deficiencies are seen with either too low of stomach acid or um, multiple medication use. I often see B12 as a big one. Um, So keep going. (laughs) So yeah, but to call light to that, the use of Tums, the use of proton pump inhibitors, I think is a huge compounding variable, right? So this is our uh, protonics, our omeprazole, our... um, what are Nexium? These are all our PPIs that block our hydrochloric acid, which reduces our intrinsic factor, which activates that B12. And, and that's a huge connection as well. So PPIs and antacids are a big driver of B vitamin depletion, as well as stress. And I'll, I'll sidebar that because I want to talk a little bit about stress hormones as we go forward. But staying in the vein of micronutrients, the next category I would go to is antioxidants and mitochondrial supporters. So this, my two highlights here would be CoQ10 and it would also be alpha lipoic acid. And maybe I would want to throw in selenium as well um, and glutathione. (laughs) So um, (laughs) yeah, I mean, antioxidants are huge because we're talking about progression of oxidative damage, right? And so when we're talking about plaque formation or decline of function or this imbalance of cellular regeneration and cellular burnout, toxicity, which is why we used to tie, and we still do to some level, like aluminum to Alzheimer's disease, right? Metal buildup, toxic metal buildup. So I would have to highlight, and I definitely have seen in a clinical environment, glutathione, which is the granddaddy antioxidant, playing a huge role with memory and cognitive function. In fact, our cellular antiox formula is really a all-star in the world of helping with regeneration of all antioxidants because it provides a good dosage of N-acetylcysteine and glutathione. And these are two known antioxidants, the highest of the hierarchy. um, And they help to detox heavy metals. They help to support antioxidant regeneration 
throughout the entire chain, all the way down to the level of vitamin C. So glutathione would be a huge one. And then CoQ10 and alpha lipoic acid, CoQ10 would be called out because that really plays a role with our mitochondria or our energy factories in every cell of our body. And Alzheimer's disease is a mitochondrial condition. So that's that trend of the statin drug with the HMO, HMA, CoA reductase, HMO CoA reductase, excuse me. Statin drugs block an enzyme called HMO CoA reductase. And in that pathway is where we make CoQ10 and other important things like testosterone, vitamin D. And so statin drugs deplete that CoQ10. And that'd be another thing to really look at as a medication intervention and an antioxidant to consider supplementing with, especially if you or a family member are on that class of drugs. Okay. Awesome. And that was your last one for nutrients, right? Well, yeah. And then alpha lipoic <laughs> like, acid. There's I so think, many more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we'll talk oh, about God. fats when we get into keto. So I will yeah. space bar that. Okay. But alpha lipoic acid is a both water and fat soluble antioxidant. It plays a huge role in coating our myelin. So it plays a huge role in protecting our nerves. Um, huge central nervous system bather, if you will, as far as anti-inflammatory effects. And it reduces glycosylation. So pretty cool in that sense, as well as a plaque reducer. Awesome. So we'll circle back to supplement recommendations, I'm sure for all of these things, but let's go into for a second, the connection of hormones and stress to cognitive decline. Cause I think this is a really big one that we need to harp on for a second. Yes. So, you know, I, I talk so much, especially now with my book, The Anti-Anxiety Diet, about the role of the HPA axis, right? And so this is our sympathetic nervous system or our fight and flight system within the body. And if the HPA axis is in an imbalanced mode, we are going to be putting out an excess of cortisol, which is going to translate to blood sugar instability or excess blood sugar output. It's going to translate after cortisol burnout to chronic inflammatory processes and immunological distress. Uh, and so when the HPA axis is in fight or flight mode, we're not getting the rest, digest, regenerate, repair function, right? So stress is a huge driver of aging because it contributes to HPA axis burnout. It contributes to excess cortisol output, which generally then leads to cortisol depletion. And it contributes to irregular blood sugar metabolism, irregular sleep, irregular circadian rhythm, and irregular cellular signaling. And our neurotransmitters that are supposed to mellow us out or reset us get burnt out based on demand. So really supporting the system on a whole body approach, this is where we see things like meditation beyond getting that seven hours of sleep, harnessing the wild stallion of the brain, practicing good, healthy mental support for that regeneration and rest mode so that we're not that wild stallion of the racing brain, which is only running towards destruction. Okay. Awesome. And so let's um, tie a few of these things together just by talking a little bit about um, Dr. Dale Bredesen and his study reversal of cognitive decline, a novel therapeutic program, because he does tie in some of the aspects we've talked about right. in terms of nutrient depletion, sleep, stress, hormones. So let's talk about that. 
Yes. And um, he has fantastic resources out there. Absolutely. And he does take on stress. He has a whole recommendation of things like Bacopa and anti-inflammatories that work as adaptogens, ginseng and these types of things along that same vein. So I think that in many ways, I'm, I'm very on board with his protocol. And I think it's, it is novel <laughs> what he's doing and bringing to light in a true uh, scientific research program. Um, so pretty neat things that he's putting out there. So his diet is low glycemic. It is low inflammatory and low grain. It um, focuses on autophagy with at least a 12-hour fast, and he recommends cutting off food three hours prior to bed. He focuses on stress reduction and has participants uh, take yoga and meditation classes. He focuses on proactive use of melatonin, so a lot of these highlights, um, and he starts with a half of a milligram. There you go, Becky. See, that 1.5 might be too much for you. <laughs> you can handle a half. And so, yeah, half of our sleep support tablet is 0.75, so there you go. Um, every night, though, um, melatonin at bed, as well as he actually uses uh, tryptophan, um, so not 5-HTP, but he uses tryptophan at a 500 milligram dosage um, about three times a week if dealing with awakening. Because again, remember, serotonin makes melatonin. So tryptophan converts into serotonin. And that's kind of the, the logic and theory there. And then he screens for sleep apnea, of course, and would fit for a CPAP if necessary. He does dig into some hormone and gastrointestinal components of progression. So both the imbalance or um, inadequate hormone expression, if women are dropping too low, um, the consideration of referral for bioidenticals and hormone balance as far as estrogen dominance or too low of progesterone. And then GI looking at markers of things like leaky gut, as well as healthy microbiome population. He has uh, vitamin D criteria to be exactly where we recommend between 50 to 100 in a blood serum, um, 25 hydroxy test. And then he looks at optimizing antioxidant status and ORAC or the antioxidant score and uses MCT oil as a tool. But he is definitely what sets us apart is he's definitely a little bit more gun shy on fats. Mm -hmm. And um, he also, uh, dosing is a little bit lower than I generally recommend on a functional level in many things. Like for instance, he's a big proponent of glutathione as well because of the cellular protection it provides. Uh, but I saw in his protocol, he uses 400 to 500 milligrams of N-acetylcysteine to help to get glutathione up. And as an example, in our cellular antiox, we provide an entire gram of NAC or N-acetylcysteine. So that'd be a thousand milligrams. And we also provide that P5P active form of B6. And we provide the acetylated form of glutathione in its active form. And so a little bit maybe more aggressive we go in, in strategy with formulas, but I think that's kind of the functional medicine way. Okay, but definitely tying in a lot of what we talked so about. So much overlap. Use of MCT as well as a tool. Um, so driving that ketone production for sure. And I know we'll get into that in a moment. Um, and I'll make sure that I link to some of his work for listeners who are interested in digging a little bit deeper into his protocols and, and his work. Um, so 
from there, let's talk about um, and just circle back to um, starting points of what to assess if we're concerned for either, you know, our future, we have a family member with Alzheimer's and we want to make sure we do everything we can to prevent or a family member, we're starting to see a little bit of that decline in what can we assess to get ahead of it? Yes. And I think this is the point when a client comes to me and they've been doing Dr. Bredesen's protocol, they might be on insufficient doses of certain nutrients, if you will, like I just said, or they might be taking wide scope, too many formulas and not honing in on what they actually need, right? So it's always important to uh, really focus on where you fit within a protocol and what your personal Achilles heel is, right? So is it the stress? Is it the micronutrient taxation? Is it oxidative damage because you work in a salon? Is it, you know, so what is your trigger point? How do you hone in on that component versus an umbrella of borderline support would be my biggest recommendation. And that's why advanced functional assessments are there. So you can highlight what areas you are in of need. So foundationally, the first one I'd recommend is the micronutrient test that we offer. Because that is going to provide you a blueprint, if you will, of where not only your nutrient depletion is and, and where you might want to prioritize supplementation strategy, but it'll also tell us trends of why and what's going on metabolically, what's taxing your system so that we can really not only just replete or restore the deficiency, but we can resolve the, the why and what's driving things to be deficient in the first place. So that would bar none be my first recommendation actually for cognitive decline symptoms and um, just prevention. And that's why we both do that annually as a wellness assessment. And I really recommend everyone to, uh, Allie, regardless did, of your- Did you get yours back yet? <laughs> Sorry, I'm jumping the gun. Did you get yours back yet? I'm still waiting on my results. <laughs> oh, I didn't get mine drawn yet. Oh, you didn't. Okay. I just oh, drew mine and I haven't seen it yet. So, <laughs> Oh, I didn't stick to our plan. <laughs> Self-care, oxygen mask. I, I need to do it. Maybe I'll do it when I'm in Houston. Okay. Okay. So yeah. So micronutrient test though, Barnon is a priority. And you know what? Maybe we should do a whole episode going through one of our reports. That'd be so oh, much girl. fun. Absolutely. That could be very cool. I hope so, I have yes. enough deficiencies to make it worthwhile though. Oh, don't hope that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't hope that, but, a, but at least a couple that we can talk A 10 minute episode. <laughs> I'm like, you're yeah. perfect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Testament to our work. Um, I don't think so because life overrides that. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so then, beyond the yep. micronutrient test, that would look at 35 vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants. So that's going to give us a lot of detail. I also definitely would look at homocysteine, like I, I had mentioned that prior, that's a marker of methylation. Um, remember, methylation is a process of building or excreting. And so when homocysteine levels are elevated, that generally will tell us that we need to get more methyl donors, often in the form of methyl B12, methylfolate. Uh, we also would look at things like choline and glycine and SAMe, things that support that process. But uh, homocysteine is a big marker as well as C-reactive protein as kind of a generalized marker of inflammation. And you could do a total CRP as well as a high sensitivity CRP to kind of correlate more with a vascular marker. And then you could look at other inflammatory markers like myeloperoxidase, fibrinogen, interleukins and cytokines. You can actually order those as well. Um, and so inflammation, that's a category of inflammatory assessments. And you can get CRP and homocysteine 
assessed with our cardiometabolic panel. And then that's also going to take you to the next category of labs to consider, which would be hemoglobin A1C bar none, as well as fasting insulin, looking at that glycemic control and balance and demand. And then um, the cardiometabolic panel will take that further and look at C-peptide, which is a marker of pancreatic function. It will look at leptin. If you're someone that's curious, if you are doing keto, where your status is for carb cycling. And then we also get an omega-3 to omega-6 ratio to determine your level of inflammatory expression and where your fatty acid balance is at so that you can see if you need to supplement more aggressively with an essential fatty acid, EPA, DHA, supplement, increase your fish intake, or really tighten up on your reduction of omega-6 foods. Awesome. So I'll link to both of those panels, the cardiometabolic and the micronutrient test in our show notes. And then what about heavy metal testing, or would we prefer to do some other form of testing? So yeah, you could do heavy metal testing as a hair test or a blood test, and that could be something definitely considered. But generally speaking, what you could do on a cheaper level, um, the first thing I would say is the micronutrient test itself will give us an indication of if you had heavy metal toxicity because you would have depletion of glutathione and cysteine. Mm -hmm. So that's something to consider. You know, you're going to see taxation on the antioxidants based on heavy metal toxicity. But you can also get a CBC or a complete blood count, which is super cheapo. And most doctors run that like on you when they're doing any blood. And you could go beyond the CBC to look at iron status. So you could actually look at your your ferritin, your transferrin, um, which is going to give us some indication of inflammation and cellular turnover or buildup in the body. And then actually looking more specific to heavy metals, we would look at our percent iron saturation and our total iron binding capacity. Because if our percent saturation with iron is low, but yet our binding capacity is also low, then that means that there's another divalent or plus two charge mineral, like maybe lead or something, docking to the iron uh, binding sites. So that can give us a good indicator at a little bit of a more affordable level and on a functional level, what's going on at the level of our cells. Got it. So if something's blocking ability to utilize iron in the body, and then we know it's, it's probably a metal. Wow, that was so much, and we're only about halfway into it already. So I think my brain's getting tired here, Allie, and I would (laughs) like to propose that we give listeners a break to kind of uh, assimilate all of this information and wrap their brains around kind of the whys of Alzheimer's, some of the, the testing that we can do, and then we come back next week and talk about supplemental intervention and get deeper into how keto can work for Alzheimer's and some of the genetic markers, because I know that's going to be a whole other episode on its own. We have a lot of interesting information to share on APOE, which is often discussed as a reason of intolerance of the ketogenic diet or why someone shouldn't eat high fat if they're APOE 4-4. If you don't even know what that is, you'll learn next week. (laughs) And yes, we don't want to stress your brains and drive too much oxidative stress and uh, breakdown or brain shrinkage, if you will, uh, (laughs) from overload of information. So go have a glass of matcha, get that L-theanine and those alpha brainwaves flowing. 
take a nap, as Becky said, assimilate and bathe your brain in the good things. And we will catch you next week with episode 111, where we will open with supplementation strategy and go deeper down the rabbit hole on mechanisms. And most importantly, talk about food as medicine strategy for preventing Alzheimer's and cognitive decline. So as always, if you are enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to go on over to iTunes, leave us a five-star review, share us with your friends on Instagram, and be sure to tag at AllieMillerRD or on Facebook or within your social circles. Sharing is caring and it helps us to put out all of the good work and see that our efforts are recognized. So until next week, guys. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.